This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Every person is composed of a series of genes that determine everything from the color of our hair and eyes to how our bodies respond to and metabolize medications and our susceptibility to cancer and other diseases. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a series of Mayo Clinic talks to the incredible field of genes and your health. We'll discuss topics and concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients. Topics will include the microbiome, cancer genetics, artificial intelligence, pharmacogenomics, direct-to-consumer testing, the ethical principles of genetic testing, and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Gina Sue. Dr. Sue is an infectious disease specialist with expertise in the field of orthopedic infectious diseases and phage therapy. She is the founder and director of the Mayo Clinic's phage therapy program and has a special interest in bacteriophages as novel therapeutics for the treatment of infections, particularly multidrug resistant and biofilm mediated infections. She treated Mayo Clinic's first phage therapy patients and is heading efforts to run phage therapy related clinical trials. Dr. Sue, thank you so very much for being part of our Mayo Clinic podcast today. Welcome. Thank you so much. Great to be here. I'm really excited for you to be here because I think I shared with you before we came on that as a primary care internist, I have to admit my ignorance about phage therapy. So if you would, can you tell us a little bit about what is phage therapy? Because it sounds like a bit of a foreign concept to most of us. I mean, I know about antibiotics and antifungals and antivirals, but phage therapy sounds like something from another world. Thank you so much, Denise. I am not at all surprised to hear you say that. It is very common for clinicians to not really have much of an idea of what phage therapy is. So I think that's a really good place to start. You know, what is phage therapy? Phages or bacteriophages are viruses that specifically target bacteria. So just like you and I have viruses that target our cells, measles, COVID, Bacteria have the same thing, and these viruses target them specifically. Their job, at least some of them, are to recognize, attach to certain bacteria, insert their own genetic material into the bacteria, replicate itself, and then lyse the cell, thereby killing it. So at some point along the way, somebody recognized the potential for utilizing or leveraging this as a therapeutic. So Felix Durrell, among other people, are credited as as being discoverers of phages. It sounds a little bit like almost a Trojan horse theory. You know, we sort of sneak into the castle and then release the weapons of mass destruction on bacteria. Yeah. How common is phage therapy? Is that something that's a day-to-day thing that we employ in treatment of infectious diseases now, or is this something really subspecialized? It is not common at all, at least not in Western medicine. So in the US, Canada, North America, Western Europe, phage therapy is uncommon. 
So in this country, phage therapy is not FDA approved. So there are no commercially available phage products for us to use. So all of the phage therapy that is done is done via compassionate use or clinical trials. It's a little bit different in other parts of the world. So in the former Soviet Union and the Republic of Georgia and Poland, phage therapy has been ongoing since its discovery. So phages were discovered as a potential therapeutic in the early 1900s, so around 1910, 1920. And so phages have been around as a therapeutic for 100 years, and folks in that part of the world have been using them as such this whole time. In the 1940s, however, there was a divergence in that certain parts of the world went on to use antibiotics instead of phages. And it was understandable because antibiotics are easier to use really than phage therapy. And it's only because of the difficulty we've been having with antibiotic resistance and the limitations of antibiotics that have led us to rediscover or reevaluate phage. So you mentioned antibiotic resistance, and you know I think that's one of the scourges right now, and really one of the things I know patients come in to see me often, and they want an antibiotic for this or that, and 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 I like to consider myself a, a steward of antibiotics. You know, just because you have a runny nose or you develop some discoloration in your sinus drainage doesn't mean you get an antibiotic anymore. Because I'm very concerned about antibiotic resistance. I can see very clearly that phage therapy would really be a real benefit in those situations where you've got antibiotic resistance. Is there phage resistance? I mean, can bacteria become resistant to phages? Yes, they can actually. But the answer to that is a little more complicated than perhaps we're used to with, when dealing with antibiotics. So remember, antibiotics are a static molecule. It's a chemical. It doesn't change. We give it to patients and they have more or less the same reaction. It's a pretty predictable reaction that they have. Phages are very different. Phages are living organisms. Amazingly, it's a very sophisticated weapon with which to fight bacteria because phages have evolved along with bacteria for as long as bacteria have existed. So the interesting thing about this is that this evolutionary aspect is that bacteria, yes, they can evolve to evade phages, but phages can also evolve to outwit bacteria. And this happens with rapid speed, even within a single treatment course, such that the failures with phage therapy seem not to be directly related to outright resistance. Yes, it happens, but the number of clinical failures doesn't seem to be that significantly attributable to phage resistance per se. There's a lot we don't know, and there are probably many failures that we don't know about because they're not published, but how much does phage resistance on the surface, does that contribute, is thought to be not that much, but we're still learning. So Gina, when we think about phage therapy, are there certain kinds of infections that are most commonly treated with phage therapy or certain clinical situations that phage therapy is perhaps often or commonly indicated? Yeah, great question. That's always the question that we start with. You know, what clinical indications are 
the ones where we should think about phage therapy. I kind of break this down into number one, what's the bug? So there are certain organisms, certain bacteria that we have good phages for. And when I say good phages, I mean, you know, phages that are known, that have been collected, sequenced, characterized. We know what they do, how they behave. And so we have phages, or we, meaning the, the collective community of phage scientists, have collections of certain phages, such as pseudomonas phages, E. coli, Klebsiella, a lot of gram-negatives, some staphylococcal phages. So I first think of the bug. There's a handful of, of organisms that are will be more amenable to phage therapy simply because we have access to and understand the phages that specifically target those bacteria better. The second thing I think about is the clinical syndrome. So what do they have? Why is antibiotics not working? That's the question you have to ask yourself. So are antibiotics not working because of drug resistance or because the patient has so many allergies to antibiotics, which happens that they cannot tolerate a single antibiotic? Or is it happening because they have a piece of metal that's infected that's in their body that the surgeons can't get out because it's playing a, a pivotal role of some sort? So those are considerations. So phages have been used successfully to treat many of those conditions. So for example, multidrug resistant organisms, biofilm mediated infections where a joint or an LVAD is infected and needs to be treated. So there are cases in the literature where that's been successfully treated. Certain cases uh, such as UTIs, you know, there's been some series on, let's say, sinusitis and other kind of chronic infections have also been treated successfully. Are they ever used in combination with antibiotics for treatment of infection? The answer is overwhelmingly yes. Antibiotics seem to work really well with phages to treat bacterial infections, recalcitrant bacterial infections. What I mean by that is, you know, I told you that bacteria and phages, they're constantly evolving, just slightly outwitting each other. What really is helpful is if, if the phages have an, a slight advantage. And the slight advantage that they have is, say, antibiotics. So if we can keep dosing phages and also administer antibiotics, that really puts the phage at an advantage. And, and together, it seems that combination can overcome and treat the bacterial infection. But there's another level to that. We can, as phage scientists, not me, but other people who've done brilliant work around this subject, Paul Turner, Ben Chan at Yale, to, to name a few, have done really groundbreaking work in that they have leverage. They understand, they know what receptors are needed to mediate antibiotic resistance. And they can take phages that will utilize those receptors, knowing that the bacteria will then evolve to get rid of those receptors because they don't want that phage in infecting them. So by doing that, they also lose their ability to become resistant to antibiotics. So it's this trade-off. So bacteria are trading away their ability to be resistant to antibiotics in order to not be killed by the phage. So that's actually quite remarkable if you think of it. So Dr. Chan and, and his group have treated patients with multidrug resistant pseudomonas infections by giving a certain phage, and then they can see that those bacteria that were previously resistant to 
antibiotics become resensitized. That's another level on which antibiotics and phages work together. That's amazing, the concept that you could actually reverse multi-drug resistant bacteria through phage therapy, because that's really what you're talking about with that last example, that we could take something that at one point was resistant and turn it to be non-resistant. Is phage therapy ever used as a first-line therapy? Because as I'm listening to you talk, it sounds like it's almost antibiotic failure and then phage therapy, not phage therapy first, probably for a lot of practical reasons. Yeah, I love that question. I think in an ideal world, phages should be used as first-line therapy. You know, we're not ready. We're not there yet. For many reasons, phages are not used as first-line therapy. Those reasons are have to do with things like access, commercialization, FDA approval, regulatory approval. The way our regulatory system works is that if there's a standard of care for something, if there's already a drug out there that works, even if it's toxic, even if it doesn't work that well, you have to use that. Otherwise, it's unethical to go with a drug that's experimental. We're almost forced to use phage therapy when everything else has failed already. That's when we're allowed to use phage therapy because that's how our our system works. But I think in an ideal world, phage therapy should be used first in order to preserve our antibiotics. When like a college student gets a UTI, that person shouldn't get antibiotics, in my opinion. They should get a course of phage therapy, and that would reduce our uh, antibiotic resistance. It would be, I think, very effective in most cases. You know, we need clinical trials and all that to really prove that. But I certainly think that in other parts of the world, like in Georgia, patients are given phages first before antibiotics. So how are phages administered? Is this an IV? I mean, it sounds like it's a virus. I mean, I took oral polio or oral typhoid before a trip to Africa and was warned (laughs) I was going to be sick as a dog. But so that's my only experience with some oral form of something. But how are phages administered? In many different ways. So it can be administered orally, intravenously. You can inhale them depending on how it's formulated. You can put them in the bladder. So intravesicular administrations and also topically. So they can be administered, you know, on skin, on wounds, or kind of directly injected into a site of an infection like a bone or joint infection. You mentioned sort of phage is sort of a broad term, and it's obvious there are probably different, uh, multiple or different phages. We think about developing a new drug or a new chemical moiety and someone goes to a lab and they say, well, I'll put an extra carbon chain on here or an extra methyl here and it'll be a new drug. Can we develop new phages or is this something that we just discover? We'd like to develop new phages and that's already been done. So I think you're talking about engineering phages. So we take what's out there naturally occurring and we're able to tweak them a little bit for them to be more useful to us. That's phage engineering. A great example of that was of a patient as a 15-year-old girl with cystic fibrosis who underwent a lung transplant, and she developed a mycobacterium abscessus infection. She had already had it, but it disseminated after her transplant. She could not tolerate the multi-drug regimen, antibiotic regimen that was toxic. 
she started to fail and there was evidence of disseminated disease sort of along her surgical incision. You can see lesions and phage therapy was initiated. But what, what I mean by that is that Dr. Graham Hatful at the University of Pittsburgh and his team were able to isolate Mycobacterium abscessus phages and they were able to change them up a little bit. So they changed them from a lysogenic phage, which is a different kind of phage, a non-lytic phage. They were able to take the genes of lysogeny and create a, a lytic phage from that. And they made a cocktail of three phages and they treated this little girl and she got better. She turned around and she's eradicated the infection and she's doing well and living life. It's just an amazing story, amazing proof of concept that that can be done. Our hope is that we can take this blueprint of naturally occurring phages and create phages with properties that are valuable to us, specifically looking at uh, lytic activity, determinants of specificity, et cetera. So it sounds like right now, if I said, where are we at right now? Phage therapy, not FDA approved, available under compassionate use therapy, I suspect available in clinical trials. Where are we going to be in five years? Because it sounds like the sky's the limit in some respects. I mean, we have colleagues across the pond, per se, in other countries who've been at this for maybe 100 years. But what do you see in the United States for phage therapy in the future? I do want to not make it sound so simple and sound too optimistic uh, or unrealistic, I should say because it's a very, very complex field. It's very nuanced. The barrier is the specificity of the phage. It's very difficult, if not impossible at this time, to predict which phages will work against which bacteria until you put them together on a plate and you see, which is very cumbersome and labor-intensive and not efficient. The science behind phage therapy is really in its infancy, I think. We have tons of clinical experience in some parts of the world, but really understanding on a molecular level how these phages behave is just really starting. And I think it will be a long time before we really understand all there is to under understand about phages. We probably never will. However, I think that we are not that far away from having a commercial product because there are companies out there who are working on developing phage products for certain indications. And there are clinical trials that are enrolling right now or about to enroll. And if efficacy can be shown, I think that's the pathway to commercialization. I don't know if it's going to happen in five years, but I think it'll happen within 10 that we'll have a commercially available phage product on the market. So, you know, one of our focuses in these mini-series is on genomics. And obviously there are genes in these phages as viruses, and there are genes in these bacteria. Are there insights that you all have gained into any genetic aspects of phage or of the bacteria that tend to be predictive of what works? And I mean, this is a loaded question because I don't know where the research is in phage therapy. I mean, my sense of things is that we know a lot and yet there's so much we don't know. But as we've unraveled the human genome project, 
I wonder what we've learned about the genes of these phages and the genes of the bacteria. And can we model with AI? Can we start to learn from all these huge data banks what might work? We're only just now starting. So we're not at the point where we can make predictions based on, say, a class or a, a species of bacteria or even type of phage. Really, I think the work is, is right now being done on individual phage bacteria combinations. And we're not at the point where we can predict. I think that's the key. I think, you know, once we're able to understand more about that, that'll be growing exponentially in our understanding of phage therapy. I can't wait till that happens, but we're not there yet, unfortunately. In your experience, have you seen instances, because, you know, I think we think about the phage and the bacteria, but then there's the host. There's that body where this bacteria is living and thriving. Have you seen that the host factors play a big role or don't play a big role? And I got a PhD and it was real easy to do experiments in a Petri dish. But then when you got into a human being or a living organism, there were so many factors that we could never account for that impacted on the pharmacokinetics. I did a study on drug interactions in an animal model and all the rules were gone because suddenly there was this other thing I couldn't account for. So what have you seen with regard to host factors looking at these phage bacteria interactions? Yeah. So phages have two hosts, right? They have their host, which is the bacteria, and then the human is the super host. So you and I are, are super hosts. That does lend a whole other level of complexity that we don't know very much about at this point. You know, again, we're dealing with not just a static molecule, but we're dealing with a living organism interacting with another living organism interacting with another organism. There's superhost immune activity, I'm sure, that is not well characterized. We're still learning about that. Again, really in its infancy, but surely I would have to say that there's got to be some host factors that, that play in. We don't understand how it works just yet. I know you've had a particular interest, I know, in orthopedic infections, and uh, I was a lucky recipient uh, 367 days ago of a new hip, and I've become a paranoid patient about getting an infected hip. So I'm keen to make sure I know everything I can about phage therapy in case I ever need it. But when I think about our program here at Mayo Rochester, as I think about our audience of listeners, are there people who we should be thinking about or what advice would you have for our listeners when they have complex patients with infections? Are there people who we should be saying, call Dr. Sue at the Mayo Clinic so we can think about, is this person someone we should be sending to Mayo for consideration of phage therapy? Who are patients who might really benefit versus you know, where they're at and where people are really struggling with complicated, difficult infections. Who should we be looking to send to see us? I hadn't intended to put in a plug for phage therapy, but as I'm listening to you and thinking about many of my patients who've had complicated orthopedic infections, I wonder who can we help out there? Yeah, I think it should be patients who have exhausted standard of care, so that's important because with prosthetic joint infections, we actually have very effective standard of care procedures. They're difficult. They're not you know, easy to undergo. 
so if a patient gets a prosthetic joint infection that's chronic, meaning it's, it's been present for more than four weeks or so, the standard therapy is what's called a two-stage exchange. That's when you remove the joint, you put a temporary spacer in place of that joint that was removed, and then with antibiotics that elute out from that spacer, you also give systemic antibiotics. You're giving antibiotics in two ways. And then you, at a later point, go back and put in a brand new joint. That is a very brutal, for lack of another word, process because you're, you're asking the patient to go without a joint for weeks and then have another joint put back in. That's two surgeries after the, the initial surgery. That process is highly effective. So the success rate of that two-stage exchange is around 90%, if not higher, at some institutions. It's important that if the patient has not had, a, had standard of care yet, that that should not be overlooked. Patients reach out to me before they've even had standard of care treatment. And I discourage one from going ahead with phage therapy in that case, because I don't know that that's really helping the patient to offer an experimental therapy that we don't know really, don't really know if it works instead of what's standard. So who then do we consider? Well, patients who have failed standard of care, patients who do not have a surgical option, so when an orthopedic device is infected, the treatment usually consists of removing it because of, of the formation of biofilm on that device. So because of biofilm, which are you know, sticky you know, colonies of bacteria that form on foreign materials like plastic or metal, they're very difficult to clear. So removal of the device is, is pretty standard. But if the device cannot be removed for some reason, such as it's large and fully integrated into the bones. So if it's a knee implant, it's fully integrated into the femur and the tibia, cannot be removed easily without having a, a big sort of morbid surgery. If we think that removing that prosthesis will leave the patient with a non-functional extremity, that would be somebody who we would consider for phage therapy. If all of that were happening, plus they have a multidrug resistant organism, or an organism that was not amenable to antibiotic suppression with, uh, with oral antibiotics, those are the folks that we would be thinking of. So failed standard of care, cannot get the metal removed, that plus minus multidrug resistance, no oral options, and falls within those certain bugs that we know we have a chance at a good phage for, would be at the top of our list. Wonderful. Today, we've been talking about hot topics in phage therapy with our guest, Dr. Gina Sue. Thank you for your time, Dr. Sue. Thank you. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. See, your genes really matter. Thank you and have a wonderful day. <laughs>